Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Professor Candice Fujikani. Candice is an English professor at the University of Hawaii. She co-headed Asian Settler Colonialism from Local Governance to the Habits of Everyday Life in Hawaii, which was released in 2008. And she's also the author of the newly released Mapping Abundance for Planetary Future, Kanaka Mali, and Critical Settler Cartographies in Hawaii. As a settler aloha aine, she has spent the last 20 years testifying for and standing on the front lines for lands and waters in Hawaii and Hawaiian political independence. It's a pleasure to have you join me on the deep dive today. How are you? Fine. Thanks so much for inviting me to your podcast. It's really cool. Oh, it, it, this is like I told you before we started recording, this has been an episode I've been really excited about. And I promised that I would share a story before we really got started on how I found your work and your book and what prompted me to reach out. Because people often ask me how I find guests to be on the show. And I never have a good answer because it's actually very random. And random tends to not make people feel very good about things when they're looking for like a how-to. Like, how do you find these amazing people? And so I was on Twitter and I was just you know, doing what we all do, kind of doom scrolling or scrolling. And someone either that I follow or that retweeted someone else into my timeline had one of those like pictures that are very popular among like what I call like scholarly Twitter, where they highlight all these books that they're reading and they have them stacked up or displayed in some kind of cool photo that I could never replicate. And when people do that, I'm always curious. So I like, I'm the person that screenshots that picture and like blows it up so I can see the the books. And I saw your book. It was kind of like just the end of the, of the book title. And I was like, wow, that sounds like a really awesome book. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> without knowing anything else about it, just the title, because I'm all about trying to understand these systems around abundance and scarcity and, and all that good stuff. Long story short, I looked you up. I think I emailed you that night. I got an email saying that you were on sabbatical and I was like, damn it, she's not going to be able to do it. And then <laughs> I got a note from you shortly thereafter saying, yes, I'd love to do it. So this is why we're here. Thanks to Twitter. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so awesome. You know, I was not on Twitter, but you know, the people at the press suggested that I get an account and really um, try to broadcast some of the words, work that I'm doing. So thank you. See, Twitter does work. <laughs> it does. For all of its toxicity and all of its problems and all of its challenges, on many levels, it's my favorite social media site because I, I learn and find so many amazing smart people that I would never have come in contact with. And you're you're one of those people. So I'm really happy that you're that you're here. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, I think uh, when I sent out the initial post with a picture of my book, I think I got a, it, it, it reached 100,000 people. So Twitter is amazing like that. Yeah. yeah, Twitter works. Twitter <laughs> works. So, you know, one of the things that really made me respond to the book title is, it again, it had this idea of abundance, which is 
something that our current systems of empire and capitalism rail against. Mm -hmm. You know, they want us to feel as if everything is scarce. So that comes up quite a bit in my work. Then the other piece that really made the connection for me beyond planetary future, which is critical work, is this idea of of mapping. Mm -hmm. In a lot of my work in in culture and in strategy, I use a quote from um, Alvin Krabisky, which is, the map is not the territory. And again, without having read the book, but seeing the title, I was like, okay, this is definitely something that I want to talk about. And this idea of mapping abundance and using cartography is is so deeply embedded into the book and into your stories about Hawaii and the struggle for independence there and the struggle against empire there. And so I want to give you an opportunity to set the stage a bit for us on why you chose those frames to bring these issues to the forefront. Oh, that's such a great question. So I love that you're quoting from, you know, that's a line from Borges, a short story on the exactitude of science, right? And the thing about that is, yeah, the the territory, what is it? The map is not the territory. The territory is not the map. The thing is that what I wanted to communicate to people is um, sort of like a biography of land. So uh, I feel that colonial maps, maps of capital, they tend to abstract land to the point where land itself becomes evacuated. Land itself is not represented. So when you look at indigenous mapping, you regain a sense of the materiality of land, what it means to people, what it, what it has historically meant to people. So you have an abundance of representations of land. You have stories about land. You have place names that remember what each place was valued for, the relationships people had with the elements of that particular place. So I wanted to approach mapping as a way of um, bringing all of those different dimensions to mapping back into this conceptualization of, of maps. And so that I, I wanted it to be richer than uh, the kind of points and lines and you know, the degrees and minutes and seconds uh, of, of Western mapping. And I had been involved in community activism, struggles to protect lands and waters for 20 years. And I had a lot of that kind of experience working with people. And I was thinking about mapping as a way of connecting the different struggles that people were engaged in. So, um, you know, in the preface or the acknowledgements, I explained that one of the uncles was saying, you know, we have so many struggles and we have so many victories, but people don't even know about our victories because there's no sense of how our struggles are related to each other. And he's talking about the struggles of kalo farmers and water protectors in Hawaii. But I also started thinking more broadly in terms of global struggles to protect water. So thinking about mapping was a way of bringing these different struggles together and uh, one of my former professors, actually my dissertation director is David Lloyd, and he gave a talk at a conference where he said this very profound thing. He said, capital fears abundance. And I just, it was just, it, it blew me away because if you want to strike at capital, why not strike at the place where it's most vulnerable? And that would be the kind of abundance you see being produced by indigenous peoples. So 
I started thinking about these indigenous economies of abundance versus capitalist economies of scarcity. And I thought that this would be a great way of making people think about what we need to do to restore abundance in a way that's not about the pessimism of climate change. You know, people get so depressed thinking about climate change. They become anxious, they become depressed, um, frustrated, and then indifferent. There's a kind of apathy. And how do we get people to reinvest that kind of passion in restoration that somehow has been dissipated by this kind of anxiety about climate change? So um, that was kind of what drove the book. Uh, my, my dissertation director gave me this kind of framework. So I thought, okay, if that's what capital fears, I'm going to map abundance. And I'm going to show what people are doing in Hawaii, how they're turning to ancestral knowledges for clues as to how their kupuna or ancestors approached climate change events. And there's so much that we can learn from that process. Yeah, it's it's an incredible, rich and, and textured way of looking at things. And what really struck me as I was going through, well, many things struck me, but among them was the the way in which you take these abstractions and and make them real. And I, I would agree with you that capital does seek to remove the essence of things, right? Forest becomes timber rather than, yes. you know, rich ecosystems. And yes. maps help to do that in, in some cases. And even in your answer, you get, you've started to touch on so many things that I have in the notes, but I want to take one second pause in there because one of the things that really jumped out to me was just the notion of how much of movement is going on in Hawaii to protect indigenous and, and native populations and how much is happening on the ground there to have an independent Hawaii. And I'm very new to understanding that as a, as a real movement. I've not been, but the image that is portrayed to most of the world is as a big tropical resort and paradise. Even though there is a, a historical knowledge on my part of of the annexation and the the kind of destruction of empire through American colonial interest, I did not understand that this is still a present day, very alive movement. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to share more about that political and colonial historical context, and also I wanted to make a distinction and, and allow you to make a distinction between the colonial settler and what you call as a settler ally mm. and, and what that means to you. So I, I know I kind of threw a lot in there, so I'm going to rely on you to kind of weave it together. But <laughs> before we get more into the book, I think that that's a very important frame yeah. because like, I'm sure many people are like myself that didn't really understand how prescient these moments are yeah. Right now. Yeah. That, I love that question. It's actually a really important way of framing the issues in the book. Um, so when we think about it, Hawaii has only been the queen was overthrown in 1893 by a group of white businessmen. 
And so 1893, you know, that's not very long ago. You know, what is that? A hundred and I'm so bad at math, 128 years ago. Yeah, um, 120 we, odd years. Yeah, we haven't been a territory of the United States uh, until 1898. So 123 years. So that's not very long in the scheme of history, 123 years. And those were all illegal acts. The queen was so beloved by her people there was no way she would have been overthrown without the intervention of the U.S. military. So the U.S. military entered into the picture and actually the guns, they said that they intervened in order to protect American lives and property, but the guns were pointed at the palace. So the queen was an amazing woman. She was brilliant. She was politically astute and she was able to maintain the independence of the kingdom until that moment when the gunship was in the harbor and Americans intervened. So I think that is recognized in the 1993 apology resolution. So the United States actually apologized for the illegal overthrow of the kingdom in, in 1993 under Bill Clinton. And the apology resolution acknowledges that without the intervention of the U.S. military, there would have been no way to overthrow the queen. And it also acknowledges that Hawaiians never relinquished their inherent right to their sovereignty. So till this day, Hawaiians continue to assert the independence of the Hawaiian kingdom. And I support that argument. I, I do believe that this continues to be the kingdom of Hawaii, an independent nation state that was recognized by Britain and France and, and so many other countries. So um, what people are doing today is there are two movements. I think the predominant one is for deoccupation. I think the general acknowledgement among Hawaiian activists is that Hawaii, Hawaii right now is under illegal U.S. occupation. Another argument has been that of um, that Hawaii is a colony of the United States, and those are two separate arguments. They have two separate avenues for uh, reparation or restoration. Deoccupation goes through the UN Security Council and the US military. Decolonization goes through the UN General Assembly and requires that Hawaii be declared a non self governing territory. So the people who argue for occupation say that if Hawaii was declared a non self governing territory, that would actually take us backwards because we still continue to assert Hawaiian independence. So I'm not Hawaiian. I'm actually Japanese. I'm fourth generation Japanese, but I do not have that. They call it the mo'oku auho or the genealogy that connects Kanaka to um, lands in Hawaii. And so I guess, you know, there are two kinds of arguments. One is that uh, we should restore the independence and other arguments that we are we continue to be independent. So it's the affirmation of independence. So sometimes in the book, I will kind of oscillate between saying the restoration of independence and the affirmation of independence. And there are very many of us, both who people who are Kanaka Maoli and people who are not, like myself, who believe that the U.S. illegally overthrew the Hawaiian kingdom government. And in the same way, this is the com comparison is made to something like Iraq. Like if the Iraqi government is overthrown, it doesn't mean that the state has dissolved. Iraq still continues to be a nation state. So it's a similar kind of argument. So as an Asian settler, I edited a book called Asian Settler Colonialism that was based 
on the work of Haunaniki Trask, incredible leader. And I, I want to say a little bit about her because she's just I'm so, I, I should just say right now, she's so She's in amazing. my notes. So. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're, get, so you're getting me cool. everywhere I want to go. She's yeah. amazing. She's, she's a amazing. brilliant um, professor of Hawaiian studies. She's a poet. She's an activist. And I want to just say that one of her, the highlights, I was, uh, we were friends. She recently passed away. And uh, one of the highlights of her life was going to South Africa and being on a panel with Winnie Mandela and Angela Davis. And at the end of their presentation, Winnie Mandela stood up and threw her fist in the air and said, Amandla, Amandla, Amandla. And for Haumini, that was, she said, it was just one of the high points in her life to be there with two women who had devoted their lives to, you know, their people in the same way she had devoted her life to her people. So I just wanted to make that connection and to say that I think she would be a totally an abolitionist today. Um, and that would be like, I just, you know, respect her so much. And, and I do miss her. I miss her a lot. I miss her guidance. You know, I want to say one one quick thing, you know, on that point. I only learned of her in in her death as it was trending and there were more stories about her. And I watched like speeches and read more work. And, you know, it's it's just another one of those things that even someone like myself, I would arrogantly say is pretty attuned to history. And you have this amazing activist that you only learn about in this moment. It's embarrassing on on our education's part, but I'm glad that I'm I know of her yeah. now and and that you had those kind of experiences. So again, this this idea of connecting these people and places right. to other global struggles is something else that you talk about in the book. And when I read the book and listened to her, I see these connections. So yeah. I'll let you finish your point. But I wanted to say that this is new information for me, and it's <laughs> sad that it's that that was the case. Yeah, yeah. She was the one who first called Asians in Hawaii settlers. She said, you are people of color, but you are still settlers in our country, in our on our lands. And it shook a lot of people up. Um, it made people, a lot, a lot of Asians in Hawaii feel very angry because they, you know, Asians in Hawaii tend to identify as the oppressed because of the plantation system. But uh, when you look at the state legislature, it is overwhelmingly Asian. 65% of the Hawaii state legislature is Asian and 40% of the legislature is Japanese, even though Japanese are only 20% of the general population. And that has to do for me with our educational system, which is dominated by Japanese teachers. And when you think about it, after World War II and the, you know, the treatment, the, you know, violent treatment of Japanese Americans who were interned, when those who had gone off to fight in World War II returned, they were able to get educations on the GI Bill. So they became lawyers, politicians, real estate agents, actually, and they gained a lot of political power through controlling land. And, and I can talk about that, but it's crazy like how they were able to gain control, political control through gaining control of land. So for that reason, we talk about Asians as settlers in Hawaii. And the book was very controversial. You know, I can imagine a lot of Asians being very angry about suddenly being identified as with, with the oppressor, you know, with the colonial power. But I think that that is something we all have to come to grips with, 
that we have, we exercise relative privilege in Hawaii. Even in this era of anti-Asian hate, we have a tremendous amount of political power in Hawaii. And that has actually worked against Kanaka Maoli. So the legislature, dominated by Asians, has passed many laws that are harmful to Native Hawaiian rights and Native Hawaiian lands. So that's why, for me, I use the term Asian settler ally to talk about those who support the decolonization of Hawaii. And I use the term Asian settler aloha aina, settler aloha aina, as a way to talk about those settlers who've taken on the kuleana of standing for lands and waters, being on the ground, you know, on the front lines. At the same time, we all support Hawaiian independence. I feel like the term settler ally or settler aloha aina, it opens up this kind of capaciousness for us to make our own choices about uh, supporting indigenous movements for liberation, indigenous movements for political independence. Yeah. So that's kind of a quick rundown. No, (laughs) you know, when I read the term and I kind of thought about it, it made me think very much of this idea of abundance, right? Mm -hmm. That we can support and stand in solidarity. Yeah with others while also not becoming the central part of the story right? and co-opting the story. And as I went through it, I, I really felt that spirit yeah. through, through the book. It, and it wasn't in that sort of like, I don't know the right word, but that, that thing that like white people do all the time where they <laughs> like, like the white savior. Yeah. It didn't come across <laughs> like that. Thankfully. Right. It wasn't, it, it right. was a different, it was a different space where almost like they put things up on such a pedestal yeah. that it removes the reality of it yeah. in our lives. Yeah. And the examples that you shared in the book felt very much alive and in the moment and active. And yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, as you discussed different cases that were happening against developers and against this desecration of land, there are terms that were often used, and I always underlined them, where land was defined as being useless yeah. or being um, a wasteland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to share why that sort of language is so dangerous and weaponized against indigenous movements. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's weaponized. So it's a weaponized terminology. So what it is, is um, very abundant lands that are in agricultural production will suddenly be called wastelands. Uh, According to some studies someone has done about the productivity of a particular kind of soil. And this is a tool used to reclassify lands, to condemn lands that are incredibly valuable uh, in order for them to be used by the military. So actually, the most productive fertile lands on Oahu uh, actually lie under Schofield Barracks. And it's true of many places in the world where the military will tend to choose or select lands that are the most fertile agricultural lands because it renders the people economically 
dependent on on the U.S. Right? Uh, we import ninety percent of our food in Hawaii, which sounds ridiculous because we have incredibly abundant land. We have sunshine all year round, right? And yet we import such a high percentage of our food that renders us economically dependent on on the U.S. on the U.S. continent. They say that if we had a some kind of um, shipping strike or the shipping lines were down, we have enough food to last for seven days. That's a, a, an incredible dependency. And, you know, places like Hawaii are seen as domestic dependencies or American Indian nations are often classified as domestic dependencies, um, dependent upon the U.S. Department of the Interior for governance and, and financial aid. So that wastelanding argument is is particularly damaging in Hawaii. Um, and you know of the struggle to protect Mauna Kea, which is a sacred mountain where astronomers want to build the 30-meter telescope. And so what they've done is they've classified the land at the summit. And even if you look at old territorial maps, it'll actually say wasteland, no vegetation. But aina is a word Hawaiians use to describe land. And aina means I is to feed, and the na is a modifier, so it, it describes that which feeds. And when they say aina, they don't mean land that just feeds your belly, but it's land that feeds your imagination, your spirituality. It feeds psychologically and intellectually. Um, so these lands on Mauna Kea are sacred because they're seen as the meeting point of um, Papahanao Moku, or the foundation of the earth who birds islands, and Wakea, Sky Father. Um, so the lands are sacred. Bottom line, it's just sacred. But because the state refuses to listen to those kinds of arguments because they say that they are culturally biased, you know, as if to say the land is not sacred is not culturally biased, they classify these lands as wastelands. And so we're re- we have to revert to calling the state on its own laws. So um, there are conservation district laws that protect mountaintops because mountains are the source of water. They feed the aquifers. So they cannot be wastelands if they're protected by conservation district laws because they're recognized as places that feed the aquifers. So clearly they are not wastelands. It's just kind of ridiculous to see how hydrologists make the argument that there's no water on the Mauna or that any kind of chemical spill from the chemicals used to wash the lenses of the telescope will contaminate the aquifer. They're ridiculous arguments that are being made there. Now, the whole thing about wastelanding is also dangerous on another global level, and it's this. There are these corporations that do environmental impact statements for different development projects all over the world. So the one that did the environmental impact statement for the TMT is Parsons Brinkerhoff. I think it's WSP now. And they have like 500 offices all over the globe. Now, the argument they made is that the there are already 12 telescopes on the Mauna and the addition of one more will not tip the balance from a less than significant impact to a significant impact, which is ridiculous, right? So they say, therefore, it is acceptable to build another telescope. The Supreme, the Hawaii Supreme Court was asked to rule on this, and they agreed 
They agreed with this statement that the mountain is so degraded, the addition of an the addition of one more telescope will not create any impact. Now, when you logically parse this whole thing through, you find that there is now no longer any grounds for denying a permit because either a place is not developed enough and therefore it's okay to build one more telescope or the place has been overdeveloped and therefore... Yeah, so you could just keep adding. Exactly, right? <laughs> so one of the Supreme Court justices called this the degradation principle and he says this is presenting a very dangerous precedent for all future development projects because there is no longer any grounds for denying a permit for development. And I'm really, you know, concerned about how this affects other places around the world. Yeah. This one corporation has 500 offices, right? So that's something that we're fighting against, this wastelanding of the earth that is a construction on the part of um, developers and not necessarily the reality of what's on the ground. And, you know, the wastelanding is also beyond the the physical and, and geographical impact that it has as an, as an idea. And, and there's a quote that I want to read here in the book. This is like on page 94, so it's maybe halfway through, where it, it talks about this as a cultural bomb. It, it says that um, the effects of the cultural bomb is to annihilate a people's belief in their names, in their languages, in their environment, in their heritage of struggle, in their unity, in their capacities, and ultimately in themselves. It makes them see their past as one wasteland of non-achievement, and it makes them want to distance themselves from that wasteland. And although that is written in particular about Hawaii, it, it is such a common theme that you see throughout colonial um, misadventures in history, current times as we kind of do see what's going on with Afghanistan. And then you can make the argument in our own communities here in, in the United States, there's this sort of wastelanding that happens before the gentrification happens. And it's it's why so much of this is connected to so many other things. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to to kind of talk about those kind of connections that happen through cartography, right? You're connecting the struggles there, and I see struggles everywhere. Those right. 500 offices are part of that colonial project, you know? So exactly. how do we draw different maps and learn from one another's um, struggles okay. and victories? Yeah. You can't forget the victories. The victories, right? So that quote was actually from Nukugi Wationgo, who's a Kenyan writer, and he's talking about conditions in Africa. And definitely that cultural bomb was what happened um, through that colonization, that process of colonialism. Um, and definitely the same thing has happened here. And actually, Rugi um, Watiango was a good friend of Hanani Ketras. So there, you know, there are physical kinds of material connections being made between places in Africa, places in Ireland. Um, Trask was also ir- Irish, and she was concerned about Northern Ireland and also connections to the Philippines and militarization of uh, Korea, South Korea, and uh, Okinawa, and Guam, right? And all over the Pacific, actually, right? So, you know, thinking about that, that kind of devastation 
that's caused by particular mapping practices that abstract the materiality of land. Um, you can, you know, by just by mapping, you see how capital creates its own reality through force and will rather than ground truths. It's not actually what's on the ground. They can do what they want by the way they map something. You know, it's really a manipulative kind of process. Now, how do we counter that? We counter that through the kind of maps that Kanaka Maoli are making it, as they present testimony against these maps of capital. And their maps are based on Mo'olelo, which are storied histories in Oli, chants. And these are, have become uh, repositories where ancestral knowledge about these places are recorded so that even though scientists will say about Mauna Kea that it doesn't rain much on the Mauna, when we, what we learn from Mo'olelo and Nele is that the primary source of water for Mauna Kea is actually fog drip. It's not rain. So how do you how do you capture fog drip? How does the mountain capture fog drip? And when we map the mountain, it's in terms of thinking about these stories about underground springs and where these springs are. As much as the hydrologist says he doesn't know where the groundwater is, we have um, maps in the Mo'olelo describing how water travels from the sacred spring Vial down to smaller springs down the side of the mountain. Of course, the state capitalizes on this and diverts the water from those sacred springs. Um, some of it goes to the Pohakuloa Training Area Reserve, which is the, the military live fire training area at the base of Mauna Kea. And then some of it goes to the state parks and the sacred spring waters are used for toilets. You know, it's really sad. But that how we remap the land is we look at the Mo'olelo and we see, oh, yeah, there are these springs. These are the names of the springs. The springs, the names have meaning. Lilinoi. Lilinoi is the name of the deity. Or See, we, we tend to use the word akua and define the word akua as gods, but they're actually the elements. So when one of the springs is named Lilinoi, Lilinoi is the, the fog. She's the elemental deity of the fog. So we know that these waters come about through fog drip and those kinds of processes. So being out on the land is also something like you can't be an armchair scholar and just kind of look these things up. You actually have to be there. So I'm, I'm part of a group called Huaka'i'ina Aina Mauna, and we spend a week every year on Mauna Kea. Um, and we spend a week just staying there and monitoring cultural sites and trying to understand and learn from the elemental forms there. For example, uh, we just went uh, the beginning of August. So I was there from July 30th through August 5th. And we saw a lot of white rainbows. So white rainbows are formed, um, they're actually more like fog bows, um, where water droplets are smaller than rain. And so they create these, they don't refract all of the prism, the prismatic colors, they only reflect that white, so it's white rainbow. And it reminds us again of the importance of fog drip. And in the Mo'olelo, there's a deity called Kalawa Kolea, who is recognized as the elemental process of fog drip. Another deity is called Laka, and she's the process of evapotranspiration. And all of these teachings come from the Kanaka Ole Foundation. The Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation has been doing the work of combing through all the mele, the kumulipo, you know, the cosmogonic chant, 
and understanding the names of these deities and the natural processes they represent. So Kanaka Maoli have 400,000 deities, and that's because every place has its own rain, has its own wind, has its own natural processes that are specific to that place. And they're incredibly beautiful, and they are all remembered through these place names. So uh, one example would be like where I live, there's a place called Punalu'u, and Puna is like a spring, and Lu'u means to dive. And what it is, is um, there are these springs that release waters into the ocean. So if you're out on a boat and you don't have any fresh water, you could take a calabash and you knew where the Punalu'u was. You could go to that place, collect fresh water out in the ocean, and then take that into your canoe and you would have water. So these are just amazing forms of knowledge based on you know, over a thousand years of kilo or close observation of natural phenomena. And that's why Kamakamali are the best stewards of the land because they have a thousand years of observing different places in Hawaii. And they map it according to those place names and the knowledge of how to best steward um, the natural I hate the word resources because it's so commodified, yeah. you know, sort of the natural elements of a place. And I think one of the things that really struck me is capital also seeks to compartmentalize. Yes. And to divide and, and take things down to its most base element and land becomes subdivisions and lots and in, in order for it to be used by developers and also to cut off the natural flow yeah. of many of the elements that you talked about. And when you share these stories and talk about these, these deities and talk about the way in which they are connecting to the elements, you use this term in the book that maps are in motion, oh. that they go through both time and they go through space. They have a, a dimensionality to them mm-hmm. that is not obvious in the way that most of us think about maps. And that way of thinking is in such a counter to the traditional ways in which we're having these these arguments. And, and arguments too light a, a word. They're actually in many cases life or death kind of conversations as to people connecting to these to this land. You know, how do we make the sort of the the language and the abundance that you're sharing more realized in contrast to the ways of empire that we've become unfortunately accustomed to. Yeah. So part of being, you know, like a settler ally means really going out on these work days. So in Hawaii, we have so many restoration projects, restoring fish ponds, restoring lo'ikalo, which are the taro pond fields, restoring owai, which are the ancient stone waterways that would carry water to the lo'i. All of these restoration projects are incredibly important. And to me, the people who are learning to be the best stewards are the ones who go to these restoration projects and they learn from the kupuna who, you know, volunteer their time there. They're they're the elders. There's so much for us to learn. And um, you're right in that just the maps of empire are static. They try to fix things in place, but Water is not static and water moves 
So, you know, developers will try to isolate water onto, you know, their particular boundaries, but the water will travel into their boundaries and out of their boundaries. And the water actually comes from clouds. And how can you put boundaries on clouds? So all of these natural processes, they all exceed beyond, you know, attempts at human humans to control through the institution of boundaries. Yeah. So I think all over the world, Native people are remapping lands, and it's a matter of us paying attention. And, you know, there's such an arrogance to the ways that we, you know, grow up in an American educational system. I love that moment in uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she says that American colonists thought that the Indians did not know how to plant things because they didn't plant the beans and the squash and the corn in neat um, monocropping rows. They actually had them all growing together, but it's because they're such symbiotic plants. And the three of them grow best when they're allowed to grow together. And so, you know, that kind of arrogance, um, it's actually transfers here all the time. The actually, you know, the saddest part is the Army Corps of Engineers takes knowledge that they have from the continent and try they try to do the same things in Hawaii. But the thing is that the terrain in Hawaii is different. The conditions here are very different. And the Army Corps of Engineers has actually created these terrible environmental problems, concretizing streams that don't allow the recharge of the aquifers. There's a way to redirect water, but concrete channels is actually not one of them. It's been really detrimental to the formation of estuaries, the recharging of the aquifers and other kinds of things. I think the army also, a lot of it is also created by the military and the state dike systems that prevent the free flow of water from the mountains to the ocean, things like that. So maps in motion take into consideration the natural processes necessary for the health of an entire land section that stretches from the mountains to the sea. Um, for Kanaka Maoli, the land doesn't end at the shoreline. The land of, a, of an area like in Ahupua'a, which is a land division, generally from the mountains to the sea, is at the outer edge of the reef because the ocean ecosystems are seen as integral to the health of the entire Ahupua'a. So yeah, you know, that would be movement Maps in motion would be about thinking about larger land divisions that are complexes. Um, it's kind of like the problem with archaeology, where they tend to look at one, you know, they tend to identify individual sites as important. There's a new form of distributional archaeology that argues we need to look at entire sites to understand how, I mean, entire complexes to understand how sites are related to each other. So this idea of relationality is integral to the practices of mapping, but it's also integral to our social relationships with each other. So that, you know, I'm also talking about how settler Aloha Aina stand not only for Hawaiian independence, but we also stand against Islamophobia, against homophobia, against the targeting of migrants. We stand with Black Lives Matter activists. We stand for the abolition of the military and the police state. Um, and people ask, well, how are you going to abolish the police state? Uh, but, you know, it's about having community-led safety initiatives that allow 
people in the community to help with, you know, any kind of problem so that, you know, if someone is having a mental health issue, you don't call the police, you know, you call healthcare professionals, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things that are more involved and relational than top down kinds of police state structures. Yeah, I've gone a, a long, a long ways. From no, that. no, but yeah. it's, it is a real a reimagining. And I right. think once you move away from the flattening yeah. of things, yeah. you can start to really open up new possibilities. And I think that's what really resonated with me when you when you talk about, you know, water. There's this, this story that you give that's very connected to the indigenous stories and and the, the native Hawaiian stories. And, you know, I just jotted down like water as a love story. Like that is a, a really different way to think about how we interact with our environment. And I, and I pulled it out because it seems like that is very foundational to many of these, these concepts, yeah. right? Like we're introducing language of love in places that they are not often contained. Yeah. Right. So I, I, you know, I wanted to to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that, particularly, you know, as I was reading about like the telescopes and going up in, going up in Hawaii and, you know, as, as a young kid, I was taught that, you know, oh, this is a great things, right. That we're exploring space and it's beautiful. Like we're getting all this stuff, but then now you're seeing that these things are harmful. Yeah. to many communities mm-hmm. and it's not the love story right so i had a love story with these things when i was young you know seeing yeah. the first space shuttle go up and yeah. now i have a different perspective on them when i read these other stories that's true right so i'm curious about how you put all that together with water as like the base <laughs> yeah 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 cuz you know it all has to do with our growing these different epistemological relationships with elements, you know, that to understand that we have a relationship to water uh, and water has a relationship to different forms of water, you know, there are different forms of water. So the relationship, for example, between Kane, who's a freshwater deity, and Kanaloa, who's a deity of the ocean, that's actually really important. And it's funny because here are two male, or they're often considered male deities, although deities tend to have very flexible and fluid gender identifications. Sometimes they are brothers, sometimes they are lovers. But the basic relationship between them is Kane's freshwater flows cool off the ocean. So when the freshwater streams hit the ocean, it creates this kind of barrier around our islands. And that's why when hurricanes come barreling across the Pacific, they tend to hit the cold waters around the islands and veer north or they veer south. And that's how we see that this relationship between Kane and Kanaloa is very important when we're thinking about sea level rise, you know, and we think about the protection of the island from hurricanes. Uh, And, you know, people don't tend to think about that relationship, that kind of that symbiotic love relationship between deities and love, you know, as an academic, we're not supposed to talk about love, you know, love is supposed to be, you know, it's kind of too touchy-feely, you know. Uh, there's now affect studies, which understands how there's an affective charge to everything. 
that um, either mobilizes us into action or sometimes paralyzes us in inner inertia, you know, inaction. But love is a, a really important concept in a lot of theory. For example, like um, Fanon talks about love. And even Naomi Klein talks about love. We call ourselves protectors, not protesters, because we stand for Mauna Kea. We stand with our love and our aloha for Mauna Kea. We're not standing against the telescope. Like it's not just that we're angry about the telescopes or opposed to telescopes. It's because we love the Mauna and we don't want this this industrial complex on the Mauna. Now the thirty meter telescope, just really quickly, they would have two five thousand uh, five thousand gallon tanks. Now five thousand gallons doesn't seem like much until you translate that into seventeen tons. Five thousand gallons is the same thing as seventeen tons. So it's also about the perception, how they use measurements in ways that play with our perception. One with human wastewater and one with chemical wastewater. That will be buried underground in the mana. To build the telescope, they would have to excavate uh, in a, on a five-acre area, 20 feet into the ground, and they would remove, it's like an insane amount of earth, like a million cubic feet of earth. And they would remove that. Now, the mountain is so sacred. Every part of it is so sacred. You know, we don't, We also, you know, when we stay up there, we take all our human waste down the mountain with us. You know, we don't just make cat holes, you know, because it's a sacred place. So it's just thinking about love and how much Kapu Aloha has been the guiding force for everything that happens on the mountain. So when we first started standing for the mountain, people were saying, well, you know, we, we should fight back, you know, we should fight back against the state and the thing is that if, if Mauna Kea is a temple, you don't have violent action happening on the Mauna. So most of the action took place at the base of the mountain. And Kapu Aloha is an understanding that you treat even your enemies or your opponents with the highest level of aloha or respect. Now, it's, it's often difficult, right? I mean, it's like treating you know racist people with respect or homophobic people with respect. But I think the understanding is that there is always the possibility to turn someone's opinions around. And that has happened a lot on the Mauna. People initially supporting the telescope, learning by seeing how much we love the Mauna, how much we're willing to sacrifice for the Mauna. A lot of them turning around and coming to understand. So standing for with love for a place is much more powerful than standing in anger or violence. Um, it doesn't mean that we will be taken lightly. So there's uh, civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action has been a very important part of the strategy there. But if you remember um, the arrests that happened in 2019, the very first arrests that happened in that struggle were the arrests of the kupuna or the elders. So 33 elders, or actually 38 elders, stood on the front lines and they insisted that we all stand back and let the world see what the governor of Hawaii was willing to do to make sure that the telescope was built, that he was willing to arrest elders in wheelchairs, elders who could barely walk and were actually carried to the paddy wagons. They were all, um, they had the zip ties on their wrists. People like Pua Kanahele, who is like a revered kumuhula, one of the most highly respected 
Kumuhula, you know, in Hawaii, being led to the paddy wagons. Even Hanani K. Trask's sister, Onauna Trask, she was also led to the paddy wagons. She looks so much like Hanani in her pictures. So that was a way of showing that we would stand for Mauna Kea with love. Now, when they took the 38 Kupuna away, we were all crying. But we quickly reformed. And the women stood, like 80 women stood on the front line. And the Kane, the men stood on the, stood behind, or actually they sat behind them on the ground to show that they were not going to pose a physical threat. While there were, you know, over a hundred state officers who were armed with tear gas and they're called sound cannons, these long range acoustical devices. It was like standing rock. But because the kupuna were on the front line, because the women stood on the front line, nothing happened after that. There were no more arrests. And the governor was acutely aware that the entire world was watching. And, you know, of course, he's afraid of what it's going to do for the tourism industry. But on another level, there's this ethical question about how far are people willing to go for research? I mean, you know, the, Absolutely. Right, the highest ethical standard is do no harm. They're arresting kupuna in wheelchairs, yeah? And so um, love has been a really important way of protecting lands and waters. Um, and it's also been a way for us to rethink what are our relationships with these elemental forms. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time and we mm-hmm. have two segments that close out the show, Off okay. the Dome and and the drop. Before I get to those, I want to ask one other question, which is this idea of the possibility of well-being against capital and extraction. So how do we map this? And then finally, there's a really brilliant plate um, or map in the book by Ashley Hunt, which is called A World Map in Which We See. And it, it talks about, you know, how we can map our human condition and two related things. I, I wish that picture was bigger. So I'm looking for it on, <laughs> I'm looking for it online to find a, a bigger version of it. But in any case, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of expound on this possibility of well-being against capital and extraction, tie it to that image of the world map if you can, and then I'll get you out on some quick off the dome questions, which are just some fun okay. off the top of your head type things. Okay. And then finally the, the drop. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up um, Ashley Hunt's map because um, it actually was some, there was the inspiration for the book, right? Thinking about mapping capital, then mapping what are the alternatives to capital. And what I love so much about his map is that he has people in it, you know, and um, I also uh, cite an essay by Avery Gordon where she describes how important it is for maps of capital to recognize those who are excluded from any kind of representation of capital. So prisoners, the homeless, people who are poor, poverty stricken, people who are, you know, have mental illness. Those are people who are all excluded from these maps. And she says, how do we bring them back into maps? How do we bring people back into maps How do we recognize that these are our brothers and our sisters, our mothers and our fathers? These are the people who are close to us. So that's what I try to do as much as possible is to bring back into the maps interviews with people who have been standing on the front lines. And they have their own stories about how they map these places in ways that are empowering for them, 
in ways that help them to stand strong, you know, in the face of capital, which often seems overwhelming, but they stand rooted in the knowledge of their ancestors. And that has been an incredible source of strength for them. So in terms of well-being, I think the ways that Indigenous people map places relationally is a way of helping us to understand how we locate ourselves in relation to places and in relation to other people. And when you're a part of a movement like that from Mauna Kea, it is so fulfilling spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically. It's so fulfilling that you realize that capital cannot feed you in that same kind of way. And I think that that's an important part of the struggle is how we hold space for and stand with each other. And um, Pua Case is one of the leaders um, in the movement on Mauna Kea. She's said um, in, on Facebook and in, in person that it doesn't matter who I stand against. What matters is who I stand for and who I stand with. And that is the well-being in the opposition to capital. And, you know, capital is so hard to stand against. Um, and I think what Mauna Kea showed us is that alternative. That's brilliant. I couldn't couldn't put it any any better. It's about who we're standing for and who we're standing with. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna that's gonna inspire the rest of my the rest of my evening. So, <laughs> as promised, I want to just answer a couple of quick off the dome questions. These All right, are the kind of first things that come to the the top of your head, kind of thing. Okay, and I have four of them, and they're really fast. And okay. then we'll get to the the drop. Okay, the first one is a complete the sentence. I wish everyone could. Work in a lo'i or a fish pond. <laughs> okay. Um, what talent would you like to grow and develop among all your available talents? Um, the ability to chant, um, which brings you into a closer kind of relationality with the elements because everything is energy and vibration. And um, I, I feel it heightens your own consciousness. Okay. That's a yeah. good one. Yeah. Um, what is the worst advice you've ever given? <laughs> That's a good question. Worst advice I've ever given. Uh, dang. Those are the ones you try not to remember, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, worst advice. Uh, I can't even I can't even think. Um, because I'm a teacher, right? I always think about my students and um I'm sure you've given them all good advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did I ever give anyone bad advice? Um, I'm so sorry. I'd have to think about that. I can't All right, I'll give you a pass on that <laughs> one. And the final one is, would you rather be a tiger or a hummingbird and why? No, I'd rather be a hummingbird. I love that vibration that they have, that they depend on flowers for um, their um, nourishment, you know? Uh, tigers, yeah, I know. Uh, kind of like not the blood and gore type. Yeah. Um, slowly, slowly moving to a plant-based diet. Although I guess you could say that um, I can be quite fierce in a, a courtroom. Um, I, I love actually doing verbal battles with attorneys. Um, I, I would say that is a kind of tiger-like behavior. The bad advice question is bothering me, though. <laughs> 
when, when we do this again, you would have had time to think about it. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I know that uh, one time my brother got a tattoo, and I, I always, to this day, I feel guilty for saying, oh, no, why did you get a tattoo? And I kind of just should have said, you know, you do you, dude. So that's yeah. what I... That's what I've learned. That's what I learned. Like with my kids, um, instead of telling them, you know, how to be, I tell them, you do you, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's so, good. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, open heart, open yeah. mind. Yeah. So I totally yep. agree with that. Yep. So the last thing we're going to get to is the drop. Okay. And the drop is where we're going to share. We can share anything with our listeners that they should be aware of. It can be anything at all. And I have a drop. Hopefully you have a drop. I can go first. Okay. 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 So my drop is not overly specific this, this time around. I did something similar a couple of um, episodes ago that I recorded where I just really recommended the work of Anita Baker, who's one of my favorite artists. Mm. And I didn't pick any one record. It was just basically go out and listen to Anita Baker. However you can do that. Cause she's not on many streaming sites. I was like, go ahead and listen to all things Anita Baker. And I have a similar one which is to go out and listen to all things Sade. Like, <laughs> I've really been on this on this kick lately with like deep discography diving. And, you know, Sade is one of those artists that she's everywhere, but she hasn't released a lot of music recently. So I feel like there's a whole generation that doesn't really understand how amazing of an artist she is. And I, I, I say this to anyone who listens to me, I've been to a lot of concerts and Sade is still one of the top, three concerts that I've ever gone to in my life. So find Sade on your streaming sites or in your CD dustbins or vinyl, however you're going to do it, but bring some Sade into your life. And that's my drop. <laughs> I love it. We were listening to Sade when we we're going up, we we're driving up to the summit. It was so cool. My friend had it on her CD and we were playing that driving up. To, I was, I thought she would play Hawaiian music, but nope, it was Sade. <laughs> Sade cuts across all all demographics, all environments. Sade is a is a good go to. That is so a your good drop. go to my drop. And you know, I just I don't know. Um, my drop is I love this book, A Nation Rising. So this is actually if you want to know about political struggles in Hawaii, this one has such beautiful stories. There's a great story about one of the aunties who's an activist who had to carry a gun with her to meetings over land struggles because developers were threatening her life. So she took a gun, but she wrapped the bullets in a diaper separately. And so she actually accidentally left her purse at Zippy's, a restaurant. And so when they recovered her purse, they saw the gun and the police called her in and they were going to arrest her for, you know, having a concealed weapon. And then the sergeant just stopped and said, so what were you thinking? Were you going to tell the guy to stop while you went through the diaper to get the bullets and load your gun? <laughs> but he knew, he knew that she didn't want to shoot anybody. She was just scared. And who would wrap bullets in a diaper except the mom? Yeah. You That's know, the perfect so. hiding place in, in mom land. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I love the, those kinds of stories in here because it shows how much land defenders have to go through to protect land. And there's like, you know, there are hundreds, probably thousands of land defenders who are murdered every year. And sometimes, Absolutely. you know, so anyway, I love those kinds of stories. No, that's a great drop. And I'm going to look for that book. Yeah. It looks amazing. And 
I'm in a constant state of trying to learn more and educate myself on these on these struggles. And I'm firmly in the side of um, independence. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm standing in solidarity with with you and everyone who's doing this work. And, you know, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the deep dive. This was great. And standing in solidarity with you and all of your work. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I really appreciated this. This was such a great conversation. Oh, thank you so much. You take care of yourself. Okay. Take care. Bye. Take care. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.